as we begin our study of Romans 12, verses 14 through 16, I want to recall two biblical accounts that can help us gather a sense of the radical nature of the love that we have been called to. The first comes from 2 Kings chapter 5, and it describes a little girl being taken captive by the Syrians. She was taken from her country, from her family, from her home, and from everything that she knew. And she became a servant of Naaman's wife. Now Naaman was a man of valor for the Syrians. He was a man who led their troops into battle and and he won victories on behalf of the Syrians, but he was a leper. This little girl would naturally have animosity for this man responsible for her kidnapping and her enslavement. She could have easily thought, serves him right, or karma has bit him. But instead, something radically different comes from this little girl. And she tells Naaman's wife that Elijah, if only Naaman knew Elijah, he could find healing. And ultimately, Naaman's leprosy was cured. But it shows something about the unexpected nature of God's love in that rather than one response that would be natural to a situation, things are turned upside down and on their head and a different response comes. A similar type of matter is depicted for us in Acts chapter 7. Stephen was preaching the truth. The people, the crowd was... uh, completely against what Stephen had to say, and in their hatred for him, they began to stone him. Now this is to take large stones with the intention of killing him. And they were hurling these stones at him, and in the midst of that being murdered, Stephen makes this statement. The Scripture says in Acts 7.59, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is not natural. It is not natural for the one being killed by someone to cry out to God for mercy on their behalf. It is unnatural. Both of these accounts depict the unexpected love of God, the unexpected nature of God's love. Now, God's love is something that as believers we have experienced. We've experienced this love We're familiar with passages like this, and they're not just words to us. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is experiencing unexpected love from God. I, I didn't deserve love, and yet He poured it out upon me. It's amazing. Not only have we experienced it, God has filled us with this kind of love. In in Romans chapter 5, in verse 5, the Bible says this, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through His Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. He's poured His love into us. So not only have we experienced it, we've, we've felt that love, He's also put that love within us. So He's, he's filled us with it. But He's also entrusted it to us. It's a treasure not simply to be rejoiced in. Not simply to hoard. 
It's something that's been entrusted to us for distribution. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you think about that, just kind of expand on it for just a moment. Think back to what Jesus said in response to the greatest commandment. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, the the fleshing out of all of the principles of the law is how we love God with all of our heart and how we don't hold on to that love that we've experienced and, and withhold it from our neighbor. God has called us in love. He's filled us with His love. And, and this God who has done this can also produce His love within us. And what we'll see this morning in our study is God's love is both unexpected and uniting. It is both unexpected and uniting. Let's take a look, please, at our text for this morning. Romans 12, verses 14 through 16. Romans 12, verses 14 through 16. God's Word says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So as we look at verse 14, we're understanding this first principle that God's love is unexpected. So God's love in us. This is what we experience of God's love, and this is what we want to reflect of God's love. God's love is unexpected. Don't ever get over the radical nature of God's love. He has rescued rebellious, broken, needy people like us. Earlier in the book of Romans, Paul told us that none seek after God. None seek after God. But praise God, God sought us. Isn't that amazing? When you, when you think of yourself and you're actually honest, if you were going to seek after someone, would it have been you? I know every wrong thought that I've had. Well, maybe I don't even know all of them. <laughs> but I know plenty of them. Those are condemning when I think of those things. And yet, I'm, I'm freed and thankful to think that with all those thoughts that have come into my mind, God sought me out and won me. That is radical. Don't ever get over that radical nature. How many times have you experienced other people rejecting you? Oh, let me count the ways. Let me count the times. So many times you found someone resisting you, rejecting you. It hurts when that takes place. And as a general rule, we try to insulate ourselves from that kind of a feeling, right? So we've been rejected, and so we think, all right, well, I'm not going to go down that road again. I'm not going to go near that person again. They've rejected me. You know, obviously, there are some people that are relentless and, and blow through all those stop signs, but for the most part, when people receive rejection, they kind of look in other places after that. God has pursued us even after we chose ourselves time and time again. And God pursued us even after we chose other things over Him time and time and time again. This is the the kind of God we have. Here in, in Romans 12, 14, there was a call to reflect that same kind of love. Where instead of experiencing rejection and going in the other direction, we experience rejection and we move toward it. 
Listen to the words again in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Bless those who persecute you. The, the Greek term there is dioko. It, it almost gives the impression of a hunt. They hunt you like an animal. Some of you this will ring a bell with, and others of you are too young for this, but just I'm going to give it a shot. Be very, very quiet. I'm hunting wabbit. Remember that one? These, Elmer Fudd is on this relentless pursuit to get Bugs Bunny. Hunting him so we can shoot him and kill him. That's silly, of course. The concept here is not silly. People on the hunt to get you any way they can. And the natural response to that is, oh yeah? You think you can do that? Let's test that theory. Or, I'm afraid, so I'm running. We have all kinds of different responses, but not usually very positive responses. Bless those. The, the word is the word for eulogy. We reserve eulogies for the end of someone's life. They're gone. They don't get to hear their own eulogy generally. It's a well-speaking. So, you know, you go to the, the wake, and then there's a funeral, and then the family and friends get up, and they tell you all the wonderful things about the person that they ever did. They leave out the negative stuff, generally. You've probably been to a few where they didn't. But generally speaking, the eulogies are positive reflections of the person's life and how much they meant to you. That's the kind of speech that God is calling for from us toward those who hate us. Um, is that natural? Is that the normal response? No. Do you have it within yourself to produce that response? No. This is something that is only going to come from a glorious God who does the unexpected. So let's take a look at some Scripture passages here. Look at Luke chapter 6 with me, please. Now, this was read already this morning. We're going to read it again. And I, but I want to affirm, before we even read it, that this reading of this and talking about this is very easy to discuss on a Sunday morning in a happy environment. It's very easy to think about these concepts and read through this and meditate, and, meditate on it when no one is currently hunting you. However, in different environments where there are people that are careless about you, they don't recognize the fragility of your inner person or even the fragility of your physical person, they could care less whether you're hurt by their physical actions or their emotional assaults on you. That is a much harder task to put into action. Bless those who persecute you. So listen to these words from the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your, what does it say? Enemies. Do good to those who, what does it say? Hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so or do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, or maybe a little bit more. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons 
of the Most High, for he, oh my goodness, this just is unfathomable, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. When you feel hunted in your own home, how easy is it to show this kind of mercy? When you feel as though your spouse is so selfish and uncaring that they have zero regard for your well-being, what if your parents take no thought to how you feel about anything? What if your children take for granted all that you've sacrificed for them? And what if they're in the midst of a deep and enduring rebellion? How easy is it to bless them when they're cursing you? How easy is that? It's not so easy in these circumstances. I'd say, honestly, you have no shot at doing this in your own strength. You simply can't. You can't love this way when people around you are hating of your own resources. But the good news is God can do this in you. God has demonstrated this kind of a love for you. You've experienced the benefits of mercy undeserved. Love unwavering. Kindness unrelenting from a merciful, good, and kind God. He has demonstrated this. And He has also graciously gifted you with that same love in the person of His Spirit who He has placed inside of you. And so while you have no ability to love a spouse who despises you, or a parent who takes no thought for you, or a child who disregards you, God has given you a resource, His grace, to demonstrate a love that is unexpected and amazing. See, He doesn't call you to do this unnatural thing holding you to a requirement and saying, I'm going to stand back and watch and see how this goes. He calls you to this having demonstrated it. And He calls you to this giving you the ability through His Spirit to demonstrate it. He is such a giving, good God. We all prefer to love in the face of difficulty, I think. I think that's all our preference when we think clearly. I'd much prefer to love than to return hate for hate. But that desire in and of itself is not sufficient. I can't will myself to love this way. I need God's glorious good grace. And it's available to me. Praise God. God gives amazing grace. He who loves the unlovely can help you love those who do unlovely things. His love is unexpected. It's completely and utterly different than our natural response. Verse 14 ends back in back in uh, Romans 12, it ends by Paul addressing our natural tendency. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Bless and do not curse them. When people seek their own benefit at your expense, your natural tendency is to write them off. 
right? Your natural tendency is to get even with them even. But God says, bless them and do not curse them. Why does he tell us not to curse those that curse us? Well, James addresses that a little bit in James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Listen to these words that will be on the screen. With it, speaking about our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, our tongue, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth proceeds or comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, what does he say? These things ought not to be so. It shouldn't be that I show up at church on a Sunday and I sing, Jesus, your mercy is all I need. And then we leave a little while later, we're driving down the street, and our wife or our husband says this or that, and we respond with ferocity. Our child, you know, asks one too many questions for our liking. And we lose our cool. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing. Oh God, you're wonderful. Oh child, you're a curse to me. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. You know, as, as the chapter, chapter 12, rounds out, we're going to be coming back to this hopefully next week if everything works out in accordance with my plan. Doesn't always happen. Uh, we're going to be covering 19, 20, and 21 next week of, of uh, Romans 12, as, long, as well as verses 17 and 18. But look at what verses 19 through 21 say. Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, what do you do? Feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, what do you do? Give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Oh, you could really twist that one up and say, I'm doing this so that he'll be burning and so that he'll have this. That's not, no, you leave that to the Lord. You do Something unnatural. And he concludes it by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This passage is telling us about something unexpected. You know, what comes naturally to us is this for that. You did this? Well, I'm going to do that. Oh, you're going to keep doing this? Well, I'm going to keep doing that. How does that work out in the long run? Is that, is that a unifying way of life? Or is that a dividing way of life? It really does a lot of harm. And it certainly is not reflective of our God. Aren't you so glad that He doesn't hold us accountable for all of our sin? He held Jesus accountable for our sin. It's just an amazing, amazing mercy that we have received God's love is unexpected. And the love that he's poured out into our lives should display that same unexpected character. Something that is out of this world. The reason that Jesus, or a reason, that Jesus said that the whole world will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another is because his love is so radically different than, than what we see in the world. And so when it comes from our lives... We're demonstrating God's otherworldly love. It's unexpected. Well, there's a second uh, concept that we want to talk about. Not only God's unexpected kindness, but also about how God's love is uniting. God's love is uniting. We're in verse 15 now. It says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So first we notice this. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, does not envy or boast. It is not resentful. It's not looking at others when they are promoted and saying, well, they really didn't deserve to be promoted. They've got a lucky horseshoe 
in their back pocket. They really didn't deserve that house. It was really handed to them. They didn't really deserve that wife. She's far too good for him. Resentful. Resentful. That's not love. That's the opposite. God's love has been poured out into our hearts and it helps us to be overjoyed at the good things that happen to those whom we love. So this passage right now, Rejoice with Those Who Rejoice, is really encouraging us to enter into the joys of others. Enter into their joys. This is exactly what God has invited us to do with Him. In an astounding way. He has invited us to share and enjoy His joy. Let's take a look at a few passages, please. Matthew chapter 25. Rejoice with those who rejoice. We see their joy. We say, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. God has blessed them. God has directed them. Look at, look at what has happened in their life. This is something that we enjoy together. And God, in a, in a far greater way, has invited you and me to enjoy the joy that's His. It's incredible. Matthew chapter 25, look at verse 23. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Will you read the rest of this with me? Enter into the joy of your master. Whose joy? His. His. Obviously, this is the talk, you know, it's a parable about someone that entrusted talents to someone, but the implication is God really rewarding us by giving us. His joy. Come and spend eternity in my presence, experiencing my joy, not for a day, not for a week, or a year, a decade, a generation, or a lifetime. Enter into my eternal joy. This is what God offers to us. It's incredible. In Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10, they had... Uh, had a solemn assembly. They, 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 they were reading Scripture. They hadn't heard the Scriptures read publicly. And the people were, were crying. They were crying. And Nehemiah, led by God's Spirit, I would suppose, said, Whoa, 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 hold up! This is not time for weeping. This is time for joy. And listen to what he says in verse 10. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat. Let's just stop there for a second. I, I like the thought of this. <laughs> All right. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord, to our God. Excuse me. This day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. Ready? Say it, the rest with me, please. For the joy of the Lord is your... The joy of the Lord is your strength. God's joy that He invites us to experience strengthens us. It's an amazing thing. And this is not, this is not just a, a one-off in Matthew 25 and here in Nehemiah 8. I want you to look at a couple more passages, please. Look at the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Jesus gives this teaching on the fact that He's the true vine. He talks about the branches. He talks about abiding in Him. Uh, bearing fruit, abounding in fruit, glorifying the Father through that abounding fruit that comes from Him. But look at verse 11. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you that your joy may be full. Who is the source of the joy in verse 11? The Lord Jesus Christ is the source of joy whose joy is the content of verse 11. His joy. God says through Christ, I want to give you my joy that you might have an abundant, overflowing kind of joy. This is again a supernatural provision. Take a look at chapter 17. The Gospel of John chapter 17. Jesus is praying for His disciples and those that would come after them. 
Verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, will you read the second half of verse 13 with me? That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. My joy fulfilled in themselves. And this is exactly how it's portrayed in Galatians chapter 5. He says in verse 16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Verse 17, the lusts of the flesh and the, lusts, uh, and the, and the, uh, the working of the Spirit, these are contrary to one another. He talks about that battle. He talks about the fruits of the flesh in verses 18 through 21. And then he talks about the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Against such there is no law. What, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love and joy. It's not the fruit of my flesh. It's the fruit of God's Spirit. God shares His joy with us. In, in Romans 12, He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. We're entering in to the, the rejoicings and the, the, the happinesses and the joys of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because we have first experienced what it's like to share in the joy that God possesses. He doles it out in rich abundance. Friends, have you experienced that joy? I want to encourage you I want to encourage you, God offers to you an abundant kind of joy. I'm not talking about the Joel Osteen fake joy stuff. I'm talking about real joy. Joy that is a gift from God. That's not dependent on whether you have a Lexus in your driveway or a Lincoln in your driveway or a Toyota in your driveway. It's not that kind of fake joy. Those are fun things, great little frills of life. If all of your possessions were stripped from you, and you know who God is, and God is dwelling in you, His joy is available to you. Not in short supply, but in absolute infinity. This is who He is. Jesus says, I want to offer you my joy. He was talking to his disciples that left everything. As if, you know, you could say it like they had, didn't have two nickels to rub together. You can see it in their daily experience. They, you know, they were always having to go, you know, either go catch a fish so that they could feed people. They had a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of denarii in in Judas's sack. There wasn't a lot going on there. Joy isn't dependent upon all of your needs physically being met to the nth degree. This is a supernatural joy that in the face of difficulty demonstrates itself. God has invited us into that kind of joy. He's amazing. So we share with that with one another. We Rejoice with those who rejoice. But the flip side of it is, we don't just enter into one another's joys. We also enter into one another's sorrows. He says, weep with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. We enter into one another's sorrows as, as our our brother or our sister in Christ loses a spouse or loses a child or loses a job. We don't brush that off like, well, it'll all be okay and everything will be fine. When someone's health is deteriorating and they're debilitated, oh, it'll all be fine one day. Don't worry about it. No. No, our hearts are tied together. And when they hurt, we hurt with them. We won't ever feel it quite as keenly as they do. But when they bleed, we hurt. You know what that's like with your children 
when they experience a sorrow in their lives, it, 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 gives, you, it gives you sorrow because you're, you care about them. Well, this is the same thing that God is calling us to in, in relationship. We weep with those who weep. The, their sorrows, we enter into their sorrows. And, and you know, we're told in, say, Galatians 6, 2, that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or like 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We're, we're, our, we're tied together. But this is also something that God has done for us. But again, in a radical way. I want for you to think about this. The Lord Jesus Christ entered into our broken world, that, that, this world that's filled with sorrow. Eternity. We don't fathom it. We try. But I have 46 years to, to work with to figure out something out, right? I've got a 46-year span to figure out, okay, that's my capacity. Try to figure out beyond that. Well, you try your best by, you know, edumacation. Oh, yeah, I'm a little wiser now than 46-year-old because I learned these things. Well, I don't get it. Do you get eternity? Do you understand eternity? Well, Jesus, for eternity, dwelled in the presence of the Father. Perfect, flawless, no sorrow, no needs, satisfied, never hungry, never thirsty, never tired. Jesus, the second person of the triune God, entered into this broken world and experienced what it was like to bleed. He experienced what it was like to be tired. He experienced what it was like to be hungry and thirsty and, and to feel rejection. He entered into our broken world. And the Bible records it this way in the book of Isaiah. He was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. He entered into this world filled with brokenness and, and, and sorrow and difficulty. He endured this willingly. And he sympathizes with us, the Bible tells us. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, our sufferings, our sinfulness. He sympathizes with us. He personifies weeping with those who weep. Everyone knows this verse. Every one of you has this memorized. John 11.35 what is it? Two words, remember? Jesus wept. You see, you know that one. How tough was that? What was he weeping about? Oh, my friend Lazarus, he's dead. Really? Maybe. Okay. But he knew what was going to happen. How long was Lazarus going to be dead? Well, by now. He, it's four days. By now he stinketh. We, it was four days. He knew he was coming again, right? He was going to rise from the dead. He knew what was happening. Why is he crying? What is he crying about? Well, he was all upset with them because they didn't have enough faith. Maybe, but perhaps he saw them crying. And perhaps that impacted him. Perhaps he was personifying Romans 12, 15, weeping with those who Weep as Martha and Mary mourned their brother's death. Perhaps his emotions were tied to theirs in some way. He sympathizes with us. But he doesn't just sympathize with us and leave it there. He's an available resource because he's one who cares for us. Listen to these words. They're familiar words from 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7. Casting all your cares on Him. Will you say it with me? Because He cares for you. You! God just told you. I care about you. Bring me your sorrows. Bring me your burdens. Bring me your anxieties. Bring me your cares. I am strong enough to hold the weight of these things and I am caring for you 
in the midst of it. And you can see this concept of God's care for His people from Genesis to Revelation. It is illustrated time and time and time again. As channels of God's love, we are called to enter into the joys and sorrows of one another. And God, through this, causes us to be knit together in love. It's a beautiful thing. In Colossians 2, he talks about being knit together in love, but it's not a command. It's something that God does. So much of what we read in the Scriptures, it's all something that God is doing. He ties our hearts together as we know Him and love Him and experience life together. God unites us to one another. It's a, it's a beautiful part of God's working. As we move into Romans 12, 16, which we've read a number of times already, he tells us to have the same mind toward one another. He says, live in harmony with one another. It's literally set your mind the same toward one another. It's strange wording there. Set your mind, phroneo, set your mind the same toward one another. He's essentially telling us to think like-mindedly. To, to view life and circumstances the same. In other words, don't take the natural course of being in constant conflict. These kinds of conflict, James writes, reveal earthly, sensual, devilish wisdom. The common way of dealing with life and differences is to butt heads. Right? You know, you think that way, I think this way. We're going to cut, you know, go in different directions here. But God has called His body to focus in on same things, things that matter, things that are of eternal essence. He's called us to this. And part of the way that that takes place is the next phrase, do not be haughty. This should be on the screen, I think. Do not be haughty. <laughs> it's a great word, isn't it? He addresses our natural tendency to think ourselves correct. Don't you think you're right? In every argument, you think you're right. Right? That's why you're arguing. You're arguing because you're right. If you didn't think you were right, you wouldn't argue. You'd just sit there like a bump on a log. But instead, you're right. So you contend. Do not be haughty. The phrase could be conveyed, get your head out of the clouds about your own opinions. See yourself the way that God sees you. Now there's a balance. I'm going to figure out what time it is. It's, it's 11.15. i got to stop this. Alright. There's a great passage in Romans 12. All of them. But verse 3. Where he says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has given to each man the measure of faith. I only have the first half of it recorded there. It's, it's not just like, think of yourself super lowly. That's one way. Like, you know, like, think of yourself as a, uh, just a beggar and just a, a, a wretch of a human. That's, that's one end of the spectrum. That's the, don't think of yourself too highly. Think of yourself like a wretch. Okay, I got it. But there's another, there's a flip side to it as well. Remember that God has given you something. So you see some worth, intrinsic worth there. So there's a balancing of, of your thinking. Think of yourself the way God thinks of you. You... You are someone that God loved enough to send His Son to die for. That should give you a good little self-esteem boost. God loves me. God loves you. But don't think too highly of yourself. You're not better than anybody else. There, but for the grace of God, go I. You know, there's that expression, that cliche, right? God has been so good to us. And we want to think clearly. You and I don't know everything this will really help you and I not to, in a conversation, just wait for them to be done so we can make our point. 
caught you. You know you did it. You were having a conversation, an argument, and you didn't hear one word that your husband or your wife or your child or your parent said. Not one word. You were just waiting for silence so you could make your point. Bop! Caught. Red-handed. Haughty. Listen, you don't know everything. Perhaps an interchange of ideas might be helpful. Don't be haughty. And then it says, but associate with the lowly. Can't really dive too deeply into that at this point. But essentially, how I would try to capture this is, don't look at people as means toward your end. Well, this person's not really going to help me get my objective, so they're going to just kind of get set to the side. This person over here, they have some influence and they can help me, so I want to I butter them up because they can profit me in getting something accomplished that I'm looking for. It says, associate with the lowly. Don't look at people like they are objects to accomplish your will. Look at them as people made in God's image who are in need of mercy and grace and love and kindness, just like you. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. When we speak authoritatively about every subject, it gives the impression that we think we know it all. Let me ask you a question. Do know-it-alls unite people or divide them? Yeah, you know the answer to that. On the other hand, God's love unites because God and His love, God's love values others, whether they are rich or poor, whether they are wise or simple, whether they are skilled or awkward. We see this demonstration of this humility and kind love in God's love for us. One last passage of Scripture, please. Hebrews chapter 2. This kind of selfless, caring love is exhibited through our Savior. Hebrews 2, verses 9 through 11. God's Word says, But we see Him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Listen carefully to verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Our perfect, sinless Savior won't introduce us as the also-rans. Think of it like this. You see all kinds of award ceremonies during your earthly sojourn, whether they be you know, music awards, which I don't watch, or um, acting awards, which I don't watch, or sports awards, which I don't watch, or military awards, which I have endured many times. You've got, you know, MVPs and Sailor of the Year or Airman of the Year, all of these kinds of things. Don't envision heaven like this. Let me introduce you to my brother. He won Super Bowl twice, and I'm so proud of him. Or, oh, by the way, this guy accomplished nothing important, but here he is anyway. Like, that's how we are conditioned on this earth. It's like, you know, these are the really important people, and they win all the awards, and then there's the rest of us. But I want you to think of the passage we just read. Maybe it'll come in a little bit more clearly. Jesus isn't ashamed of those whom he has redeemed, he has made us fit for heaven. And he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Can, can you just let that wash over you for just a second? I want you to think of everything you know about Jesus. And I want you to envision just for a second him introducing you and saying, I want to introduce you to my brother. 
Does he associate with the lowly or what? He associates with me. It's incredible. This is the God that we talk about and read about and sing about and pray to and pray through. And this is the God that we offer to our neighbors and our co-workers and our friends and our spouse and our children and our parents and our aunts and our uncles and everyone we know. This is the God that we try to tell people about. He cares about us and He's not ashamed of us. He accepts us through the work of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. And this is the love that we've been called to. It's unexpected and it unites us into a family and makes us Forever family. You've seen families come together. You've seen them torn apart. You've seen ups and downs in families. This family is a forever family. Because of us? Mm -mm -mm. Because of Him. What God does is real and endures. It's It's the work that changes everything about who we are. And we have the privilege of loving this way because God has poured out His love into us. It's not natural. It's not learned. It's supernatural. It's a grace-given love. It both is unexpected and it's uniting. What I would say is, Lord, help us not to settle for a cheap, counterfeit love that we have crafted for ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, we come before You and we are amazed at Your faithful, fervent, ceaseless love. Thank You that we have experienced it. We're filled with it and You have entrusted it to us, we pray that we would reflect Your love in a real and an increasing way for Your glory and for the good of those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.